0: Now, as we turn to the scriptures for this last meeting for a little while, uh, I want to say with a very, very sincere heart, a a great big thank you to the saints here. Um, First, for the invitation, the confidence of the assembly in inviting me for the conference. Thank you very much for that. Uh, For all the love, the kindness that has been shown, and uh, it is deeply appreciated. It's a lovely foretaste of heaven and home. So the Lord be with you. We keep you in our prayers. We're aware of certain individual circumstances as well, and we seek to remember those before the Lord as well. So we commit you to the Lord for his grace and for his blessing, and thank you again for all the kindness shown. We're going to turn then to uh, conclude our little study in that uh, very full sentence at the uh, start of the Ephesian letter. We're going to read again the section, we make no apology for reading it all, it helps to... Fix it in our minds, and uh, we're just going to concentrate tonight on the last two verses, but we'll read from verse 3 again of Ephesians in chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him, in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. Once again, we thank God for the liberty to read his word publicly and pray that it will be blessed to us this evening. So we thought a little on Tuesday evening of the will of the Father and how that that has been realized through the work of the Son last evening. And now uh, we're going to be thinking this evening of what we've headed, the witness of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit of God in the child of God, confirming these things that we have been thinking about. The reading begins at the end of verse number 12, where it speaks of Uh, believers, the believers in Ephesus having first trusted in Christ. And interestingly, you'll just notice as an aside that in verse 13, uh, the apostle turns to a group within the Ephesian assembly. Uh, He's been speaking in the uh, first person, uh, plural, that is, he's been speaking about us and we, but now in verse thirteen, he turns to ye. And I think the purpose of that is simply that um, there was a people who were involved in God's sovereign purpose, a people whom God had elect and chosen for Himself, the nation of Israel. And lest it be thought that all these great things that we have thought about in the previous evenings and that He's been be going through, just lest it be thought that uh, somehow this was still the exclusive right of the children of Israel. Paul turns, at least in thought and word, to the Gentile element amongst the church in Ephesus. It's true in Ephesians, it's in Colossians, it's in the Galatian letter. It's very interesting to mark the change in the personal pronouns, as Paul writes. Sometimes it's to we and us and sometimes it's to ye, and sometimes it's about them. And so you have to mark those personal pronouns as Paul writes. So here he just switches for a moment from we and us to ye, just to make sure that 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 Gentile element amongst the church at Ephesus knows that they're fully included in this. So then, as we look at verse 13... Uh, Speaking of those who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also, not so much ye also trusted, but in whom ye also, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, you were sealed. So he's repeating that little expression, in whom also. He repeats it because the clause is rather long at the beginning of verse 13. So he says, now uh, all these blessings were obtained by you. You trusted in Christ, and, and you Galatian, uh, sorry, you Ephesian, Gentile believers, all included, in whom ye also, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, upon believing, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So the in whom is Christ. See how in verse twelve you first trusted in Christ, in whom? The middle of verse 13, in whom? So now he says, you've been sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit who was promised. So that he's been speaking about the fact that we're in the heavenlies in Christ, that all our blessings are in Christ, and now he says, you've been wonderfully sealed in Christ. And you can follow that idea immediately that when you seal something, it's to keep it there. But it's more than that. Uh, The seal was really a mark of authenticity. I don't know. Let's take an example. There might be uh, a particular watchmaker. There might be a particular maker of ladies' handbags. Very high-end. Very, very beautiful materials used. And anything like that is going to be the subject of a rip-off. Because that's what people do. So they're always looking for a, a mark of authenticity. This is the real thing. This is the genuine article. How do we know? When we've thought of the immensity of the blessings God has brought us into, to put it crudely, how do we know it's for real? How do we know this is not just some tremendous flight of fancy and oratory on the part of the of, of the apostle? Well, he said, we've been given a seal of authenticity. Uh, this has been verified to us. And the way in which the Godhead has verified this truth to us is that we are now indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That promise was given by the Lord in the upper room to his own, that when he went away, another comforter of the same kind would come. He would be with them. He would be in them. That was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And now a holy and divine person indwells every believer. Don't let your familiarity with that truth rob you of its amazing significance. One of the things it does, it assures us of the absolute totality of the fact that our sins are dealt with. A divine person couldn't dwell in a place that is offensive to his holy character. For a divine person to dwell within the child of God, it must mean that every matter to do with our sin and our sins has been absolutely, totally, and forever dealt with. It must also mean that that wonderfully, the God who has done all of this by grace wants us to be absolutely sure that it's been done, that it isn't a flight of fancy, and it isn't in any way dependent on anything that you or I do. Isn't it wonderful that God, who would bring us into all this by grace, also, shall we say it reverently, goes to great lengths to verify this to us, to authenticate it, to to assure us of his honesty and his purpose in doing all of this. So then he says to the Ephesians, You heard the word of truth, the gospel through which you were saved, And uh, in whom, that is in Christ, not so much after that you believed. Um, Just the way we use the word after in our modern language suggests something post the event. Uh, But really the thought is upon believing. It's very clear from other scriptures, if any man hath not the spirit of God, he's none of his. So the idea that Uh, those who espouse so-called Pentecostal doctrine, those who say that you can be saved, but you then have to wait uh, 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 for the Holy Spirit to come upon you and to be in you. It's clearly wrong. Uh, This isn't a proof text for that kind of thing. It simply means that upon believing, the very moment that you trusted Christ, you were sealed. And God was marking you out as his. It is the evidence that God has made you his by right. There's some lovely examples of this, I suppose, in the the Old Testament Scripture when we think of being sealed. And uh, we'll just suggest them to you. You could go back to uh, Esther chapter 8 in your Bible. The book of Esther and chapter 8. And in Esther, chapter 8, the plan to eradicate the Jews uh, has been initiated. This whole book, by the way, the book of Esther, it comes in that 57-year period that lies between chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Ezra. So you think of the book of Ezra, first six chapters, then there's a 57-year gap before you come to chapter 7 of Ezra, and in that gap, historically, this book of Esther lives. So uh, there was this plan to eradicate the Jewish people. Uh, that ball has been set rolling. Those who devised it have been caught up with, and um, uh, and now in, in, in chapter 8, uh, Esther is looking to see that the decree to wipe out the Jews is going to be revoked. Uh, so that's the quick background to Esther chapter 8. And um, she's in the presence of the king. And in verse 7, Then the king Ahasuerus said unto Esther the queen, and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and him they have hanged upon the gallows, because he laid his hand upon the Jews. Write ye also for the Jews, as it liketh you, in the king's name, and seal it with the the king's ring. For the writing which is written in the king's name, and sealed with the king's ring, may no man reverse. So that which was sealed by the king, sealed with the king's ring, the so-called signet ring, the signet on the ring is pressed into the hot wax of the seal. It marks it as having the authority of the king. That which is sealed with the king's ring may no man reverse. It's just lovely to think of writing that can't be reversed. If that was the case with an earthly monarch and the seal that he put upon it meant that something written in his name could in no way be reversed, how much more the seal of God? What he has written no man can reverse. Thank God for eternal security of salvation. I've come across a number of people, particularly in Europe, Eastern Europe, Ukraine, and countries like this, where they've been inflicted with wrong doctrine. It's there on the west coast of Scotland as well. Wrong doctrine that, that teaches them they could be saved today and lost tomorrow if they don't persevere in divine things. And it's uh, it's a pernicious doctrine that robs these children of God of all their joy, it robs them of any effective service for God, and thank God for assurance of salvation. I hope you would understand, and younger believers especially, that assurance of salvation doesn't come from any memory you have. I say that because it might be great if you can recall a particular occasion You can recall the very moment when you trusted Christ. You can maybe recall the date, the hour, the time, the place, and everything else. Not every believer can. And there's many reasons why that is the case. But assurance of salvation never rests on feelings. It doesn't rest on experience. It must rest on the Word of God. That's where your true assurance must rest. Remember when the Lord Jesus graciously healed the woman with the hemorrhage and, uh, which she'd had for 12 years and he healed her. And uh, Mark tells us that she immediately felt in herself that she had been healed. But the Lord didn't leave her with her feelings. Oh, she felt there and then that she had been healed. But, but maybe what about in three or four years' time when the little twinge comes back again? No, he left her with his word. Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And so we rest on God's word. We rest on the writing that cannot be reversed. And so we have this precious seal in the word of God that what God has written, it can never be reversed. And we rest for our eternal security of salvation upon the written word of God. But again, there's another nice little picture. It's in uh, the book of Jeremiah this time. And uh, chapter thirty (laughs) two. Chapter thirty two. This is all in the days leading up to the captivity of Judah in Babylon. And uh, there's very dark clouds on the horizon as far as the nation is concerned. And strangely, uh, Jeremiah is told to buy a piece of land which very shortly is going to be overrun by the Babylonians. And yet the very fact that he's going to buy that piece of land uh, is God's assurance to him that one day it would be recovered from the Babylonians and he would be able to lay title to it again. So... um, The word of God had come to Jeremiah uh, to buy this um, field from a man called Hanamiel, who was his uncle's son, so a cousin of his. And uh, in verse 9 of chapter 32 of Jeremiah, And I bought the field of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, that was in Anathoth, and weighed him the money, even 17 shekels of silver. And I subscribed the evidence and sealed it, and took witnesses, and weighed him the money in the balances. So I took the evidence of the purchase, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open. And I gave the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch the son of Neriah, the son of Maesiah, in the sight of Hanamiel, mine uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses that subscribed the book of the purchase, before all the Jews that sat in the court of the prison. Everything was done legally. Everything was done carefully. Everything was done properly. I subscribed the evidence and sealed it. I took the evidence of the purchase. So there's another use of the seal. It was to guarantee that the full purchase price had been paid. Do you remember how that in Genesis chapter 43, when um, the time was drawing near for Joseph's brethren to be reconciled to him, he knew who they were, but they didn't know who he was. And it's a lovely picture of how in a future day, the estranged brethren of our Lord Jesus Christ, the nation of Israel, is going to be restored to him. And uh, we have that setting where um, the demand had been made that unless Benjamin came down uh, from his father Jacob, unless Benjamin came, uh, that there was no hope for the uh, brethren to be believed and and, uh, to be acknowledged as being not spies. So back there in the book of Genesis, um, it's actually a lovely picture of the restoration of the nation of Israel. Uh, and, And when you look at it that way, The whole picture changes a bit. You know that Joseph would be, in that sense, a lovely picture of Christ. Uh, Not least because, as we've often reflected, um, Joseph was associated with four houses in his uh, experience. We find him first in the Father's house, picture of Christ in John's Gospel. And then he moves from the Father's house, and the next house we find him in is Potiphar's house. He's been sold into slavery. So he's the servant. He's in the house of the servant. It's the it's Mark's gospel that's in view. But then things get worse, and he finishes up in the prison house. And uh, we find him there as the as the guiltless man, there in the prison house. He's there as a sufferer, uh, and it would call the perfect man of Luke's gospel to mind. But then he moves from the prison house to Pharaoh's house, and he's honoured and he's glorified, and that brings to mind Christ in Matthew's gospel it's just lovely the way the spirit of God weaves these things together but right in the middle of that where we've got the reconciliation of his brethren there's this little cameo and uh, and Benjamin becomes the picture of Christ he's the only one who was born in in the land he's the only one who was uh who was not implicit in the selling into slavery of Joseph Uh, He was the one born just outside Bethlehem. First mention of Bethlehem in your Bible. He's the one who, when he was born, had two names. As his mother died, she died giving birth to him shortly afterwards. Uh, She said his name is going to be Benoni, the son of my sorrow. And his father said, no, he's going to be called Benjamin, the son of the right hand. So he's associated with suffering, and he's associated with glory. And so there's a lovely little picture of Christ in all of this. And uh, when the time comes for Joseph to make arrangements uh, for his brethren to be restored to him, uh, we find an unnamed servant in his house. On a few occasions in your Bible, you'll find an unnamed servant. And usually that unnamed servant is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And the unnamed servant is charged with um, seeing that these brethren, the brethren of Joseph, that everything's made ready because they're going to dine with him at noon. Is that lovely expression, bring these men home. Wow, that's what the Holy Spirit's doing for us today, isn't he? He's bringing these men home. He's watching over us. He's providing for us. And all the different things he did for them. We mustn't get too sidetracked. We're in Ephesians chapter 1. But it, but lovely pictures of, of, of how uh, Christ's brethren are going to be restored to him. And the, one of the first things that that unnamed servant, who is a picture of the Holy Spirit, one of the first things he did was address the, the concern of Joseph's brethren. Because remember, they had on two occasions, found their money in their sacks. Their money had been returned to them. And their big concern was, we paid. We paid. Honestly, we didn't steal this. And one of the first things that unnamed servant says to them is, don't fear. I had your money. The price has been paid. Now that's a long way for me to go around. Just to say, that here one of the lovely things about the seal of the Holy Spirit is that it is the evidence of the purchase. Do you worry sometimes about your sins? Do you sometimes get fears, you get doubts, and you begin to wonder, have I really got it? Am I genuinely saved? Did I believe enough? Did I understand enough? Have I trusted enough? And the wonderful truth is, it's not about you. It's not about whether you did enough. It's about the fact that Christ has done enough. He's enough. And if you have first trusted in Christ, then you can leave everything to Him. And one of the things the Holy Spirit does, one of the first things He does in the life of a child of God, He gives assurance the price has been paid. You needn't fear. And it's one of the ways that the devil loves to attack. It's a fortunate Christian who's never at some point in their experience had doubts as to whether they're truly saved. And perhaps even when we, when we, when we try and sum up all the tremendous weight of truth associated with the blessings that we have in Christ, and we're very conscious, perhaps, of our own faults and failings. And we think, how can how can this all possibly be mine? And this is why it's so tender, so kind, of the triune God, that the God who willed it thus, and the Son who did the work to make it happen, that together they have sent within us the Holy Spirit to give assurance and witness that that which is written will never be reversed, And that which needed to be paid has been totally and fully settled. It's not about whether we've done enough. It's all about Christ being enough. Those doubts, they'll sometimes come completely unbidden. And this is where, when that happens, we we must do our best with the help of the Spirit of God. Not so much to go back to the experience That's where the questions come in. Did I know enough? Did I believe enough? Did I weep enough? Did I repent enough? You don't go back to the experience. You go back to the assurance of God's word. That he that hath the Son hath life. God has spoken. And the very God who willed it thus is the God who has promised. So that seal that that assures us that the word written will never be revoked The seal that assures us that the price has been fully paid. There's one more scripture we could read uh, in that connection. And that's in the book of Daniel and chapter 6. The book of Daniel and chapter 6. Now this is where uh, those who are jealous of Daniel and the uh, they're jealous of his place in the king's court, so they have got the king foolishly to sign uh, a rule, a law, that no one should worship any other than himself, and of course Daniel just carried on, as we know, worshipping the God of heaven. So we read in verse 16. Daniel 6 and verse 16. Then the king commanded and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, Thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. And a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signets of his lords. Notice this, that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. That the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. Well, it was a wonderful deliverance, wasn't it? The king came back the following morning and uh Daniel was still there, still alive. God had overruled. But of course we can't help it, our minds go to another occasion. When another great stone was rolled into place. And a seal was put upon that stone. The place was the tomb of our Lord Jesus. And his holy body had been laid there very tenderly by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Great stone was rolled across the entrance to the tomb. And it was sealed. And it was put there and the seal of the Roman governor was put upon it, which in turn amounted to the seal of Caesar himself. There was no higher authority in the known world. The world's highest authority had put a seal upon the tomb of Christ. He's gone. He's buried. And the only way that seal could ever be broken legally, was by one who had higher authority than Caesar himself. What a glorious day it was. When they came early in the morning, Mary came and found the stone rolled away. There was a higher authority than Caesar. Of course there was. The living God of heaven. And he had raised Christ wonderfully from the dead. The stone was rolled away. The seal was broken. And in Daniel chapter 6 the purpose of the seal on that stone was that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. And my brother, my sister, we've read of the purpose of God concerning us on Tuesday night and on Wednesday night. And here on Thursday night, we're reading about the Holy Spirit who is sealed us in Christ. That the purpose of God concerning you and concerning me might never ever be changed. Lovely to have that certainty, isn't it? There's nothing you can ever do. There's nothing hell can ever do. There's nothing that could ever be done that will thwart God's purpose in Christ of bringing all these sons unto glory and seeing them wonderfully conformed to the image of God's Son. And he's given us the Holy Spirit as the seal of that. So having confirmed the witness of the Spirit, having sealed us in Christ and we've looked at the Old Testament pictures in Esther, Jeremiah, Daniel, to teach us that the word of God will never be changed, to teach us that the full purchase price has been paid, that the purpose concerning us will never be changed, we would say, well, that's enough. That's wonderful. We can can rest on the word of God and be sure of heaven and home, but it gets better. The Holy Spirit of promise, verse 13, says verse 14, is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So, this divine person, the Holy Spirit, is the earnest of our inheritance. The thought of an earnest is the thought of a pledge, a guarantee. A lot of commentators put it like this. It's a bit like a down payment. But with respect to those commentators, I think they've got the wrong end of it completely. It's not the thought of a down payment here. We've already seen the full purchase price has been paid. Nothing more to do there. What then is the thought of the pledge? Well, for that, we're going to go back to the book of Genesis again. And uh, we'll see how the scripture instructs us as to the thought of this earnest, this pledge of our inheritance. Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38, and again, something of the background, just to refresh your memory. Uh, We have in this chapter things concerning Judah. And um, Judah, in verse 2, saw a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went in unto her, and she conceived and bare a son and called his name Er. Another son called Onan. Another one called Shelah. And uh, then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. So Ur, Judah's firstborn, a wicked man, was slain in verse 7. Onan was told in verse 8 to follow the custom and go and marry her to raise up seed to his brother. Onan disobeyed that, and so in verse 10, God slew him as well. Verse 11, Judah says to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow at thy father's house till Shelah, my son, be grown. For he said, lest peradventure he die also, as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. And in process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. Judah was comforted and went up unto his sheep shearers to Timnath, he and his friend, Hira the Adulamite. So now a little plan was hatched because Tamar was quite convinced that Uh, She would never get the third son to be her husband. So she hatched a little plot and she waited for Judah by the side of the way. And in verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought her to be in Harlot. Because she had covered her face. And he turned unto her by the way and said, Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What wilt thou give me that thou mayest come in unto me? He said, I'll send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Wilt thou give me a pledge till thou send it? He said, What pledge shall I give thee? And she said, Thy signet, thy bracelets, and thy staff that is in thine hand. And he gave it to her, and came in unto her, and she conceived by him. The agreed price for this rather unsavory and shady deal was um, a kid of the goats. Just a little baby goat. I have um, a photograph of my computer after I'd taken a meeting in a village in Sri Lanka, and um, the saints very kindly came up and gave me two goats. Um, So... A bit difficult to know what to do with those when that's given to you by way of fellowship. But uh, anyway, we thanked them for them and just gave them back and hoped that they would enjoy them. Uh, Two delightful little kids of the goats. Plenty of them scampering around. And uh, that was the price agreed for this deal. A little baby goat. Now, of course, at the time, Judah didn't have a goat with him. And Tamar had every reason not to trust him. So she said, look, um, you owe me a goat. Uh, You don't have the goat with you. So um, what pledge will you give me? What guarantee will you give me that you will send one of your young men with that goat? He said, what pledge would satisfy you? What what sort of guarantee would keep you happy? She said, well, if you give me uh, your signet, the bracelets, and the staff that is in thine hand. Well, the signet, we've already seen from Esther, the uh, the seal that's, that's sealed with the king's signet. Um, the modern-day equivalent of him giving her his signet is you giving to somebody your bank cards and your credit cards with all the pin numbers and saying, there you go. In other words, she's got access to all his wealth. All the wealth that belonged to Judah was put into her hands via the signet that he gave her as a pledge. The bracelets were those cords that that the, the, the signet would have hung upon. The staff, of course, necessary to keep him standing. So really, everything that he could have relied upon, he gave to her. Now, just think what the price was And then think about the value of the guarantee of that. Access to all the man's wealth as a pledge for an insignificant little goat. The guarantee far outweighed the value of the transaction. That's the point. That's the pledge. It's the guarantee that what he had said he would do would be done. Now come back to Ephesians. The Holy Spirit is the pledge of our inheritance until the time comes for the full redemption of the purchased possession. What's the purchased possession? You and me. Uh, And God's design for us is not only that he has saved us uh, and delivered us from the pit, it's not only that he provides all that we need as we, as we journey through time, but as we've seen often now, his, his ultimate for us is that we will be with Christ, like Christ, for eternity. That's the promise he's made. He's enabled all that through the sacrificial work of the Lord Jesus, that full price that's been paid. It's unshakable. We've already got that seal that says that the writing can't be reversed. The price has been paid. The purpose concerning us can never be changed. And yet, on top of it all, God says, Look, I want to show you the measure of the sincerity of my love. I want to give you a guarantee. I want to give you a guarantee that assures you that everything I've promised will be delivered. What a wonderful God. What a gracious God. And the pledge that he has given far outweighs in value all that it guarantees. Because all that it guarantees is wonderful and beyond our comprehension. But in order to guarantee it, God has given us a divine person to dwell within us until the time comes for the full redemption of the purchased possession. Romans 8 speaks about that full redemption. Paul points out to the Romans that the whole creation is groaning, is travailing in pain. The uh, ecologists today tell us, well, yeah, that's the case. But the ecologists think that the groaning and the travail of creation is all about death pangs. But Paul says, No. No, the groaning of creation is not about death pangs; it's about birth pangs. It's like the woman who is uh, who is imminently going to bring forth her child, and the pangs associated with that birth become more frequent and more intense until eventually the child is born. And he said, "That's what creation's like at the moment: it's groaning and travailing. It's under the curse that was put upon it because of the fall of Adam." It was impossible for a fallen man to live in an unfallen creation so creation has been subject to vanity all these years since Adam sinned and it's groaning and it's longing to be released from it so that creation can do what God intended it to be for. You know what's going to trigger it? The manifestation of the sons of God. When we're glorified When we are taken home to heaven and glorified, the manifestation of the sons of God is going to be the trigger that will see all these wonderful things happen. It's difficult to understand, isn't it? Difficult to comprehend. Difficult to believe that we would have such a pivotal role together in the purpose of God. But creation is groaning. It's waiting for us to be fully redeemed. Oh, the price has been paid. There's no question of that. But part of the whole wonderful package of redemption, of the liberty into which we've been brought, is that we might ultimately be delivered from this body of death. The body of sin was dealt with in Romans 6. That's what we were in Adam. It's all dealt with. This body of death is in Romans chapter 7. Oh wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? The things that I would do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do. The very things I find myself doing. Oh still to be burdened with that sinful nature that was neither removed or improved when we got saved. Oh to be able to know Christ as we should. Oh to be able to live for God as we should. Oh, to be free, ultimately, of these treacherous, devious minds and and these hearts that are so duplicitous. Oh, to be delivered from it all. And God says, you will be one day. Fully redeemed. The manifestation of the sons of God. And God said, "Just, just to give you an absolute guarantee, I can give you no more valuable, no more precious, No greater guarantee than this. That I will keep my word. I will take you home. I will glorify you. I will make you like Christ. I will give you a place in the kingdom for eternity. He said I give you this guarantee. The Holy Spirit is within you. And so he is the earnest. Of our inheritance. He's the pledge that God has given. Of our inheritance. Until the redemption Of the purchased possession. And it's all unto the praise. Of his glory. That's Why he did it. It's in the middle voice again. He did it for himself. Oh he did it because he loved us. Yes. He did it that he might have a love gift. To give to his son. Yes. But ultimately the eternal. Living God of glory said I did it for myself. I did it for the praise of my glory. And to think that divine persons have worked together in the way and are working so that nothing can possibly knock this program off course. It won't be delayed or extended by a second. It involves every one of us who first trusted in Christ. From the newest believer to the believer who's been longest on the road. All one day soon to be gloriously caught up when we hear the shout To be that divine consort for Christ, for eternity. To be his companion, to contemplate his glory. And then to spend the vast ages of eternity. The millennium will be just not even a speck of dust against the whole background of space as we know it. That's just the manifestation of the kingdom. That's the closing chapter of time. But when, when that's come to an end, uh, and all traces of sin will finally be put away as, as the elements God created in Genesis 1 will, will be melted down, the, uh, the there will be this tremendous fervent heat, the great noise, the the elements melted, every vestige of sin purged by fire. And time will end and the great day of God will open up. The vastness of the ages, of the ages, of the ages of eternity. He and I in that bright glory, one deep joy shall share. Mine to be forever with him, that we can understand. The great joy that one day we shall be with him. But to think of the joy of his because... We are there. It's a wonderful thing to be saved. And we become earthbound, don't we? And we lose sight of it sometimes. The glory of the grace of our God. And we thank God for occasions like this when, over a few evenings, we can just contemplate something of the magnitude of what God has done in redemption, of what it means to you and to me. And we trust that we'll walk out and for the next few days with a lighter step. And we trust the Lord will keep us cleaving to him until we see him face to face. Thank you for attention. We trust God will bless his word.